to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We'll be looking at verses 73 through 80. Psalm 119, verses 73 through 80, and considering the rule of the Christian life. One of the things that the session thought would be good for us to do on Communion Sundays is to take a break from our normal sermon series and focus more on practical Christian topics, practical Christian uh, living. And I think as we've been doing this, it seems to me that there's nothing more practical than understanding the law of God and how the Ten Commandments serve as a guide to our life. And so what we're going to do this Sunday is begin that series of sermons through the Ten Commandments on Communion Sundays, so every month a new sermon in that series. And this morning we're going to look at Psalm 119, verses 73 through 80, as a general introduction to the Ten Commandments and the law of God. And so give attention to Psalm 119, verses 73 through 80. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let, I pray, your merciful kindness be for my comfort according to your word to your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, those who know your testimonies. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, that I may not be ashamed. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, and we give you thanks that in your infinite wisdom, you have ordained preaching as the primary means by which you make known your word to us. So we pray now that in fulfillment of your promise, that you would pour out the Holy Spirit and bless this time of preaching that our hearts might be edified and our souls sanctified in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We pray all of this for his sake. Amen. Have you ever had a miscommunication? I'm sure if you've communicated with any of your fellow human beings, you have had a miscommunication at some point. Miscommunication is sometimes comical. Sometimes it's just a matter of uh, misunderstanding a word that somebody used. Other times, miscommunication can be disastrous. It can be catastrophic. What often happens when we have miscommunication between one another is that one or the other party is operating with an assumption. We have an unspoken assumption that we are intending by what we communicate. Or if somebody speaks to us, we assume what they mean without explicitly having them tell us what they mean. And so these unspoken assumptions cloud the communication. Sometimes you speak to a friend or they speak to you and they respond in a way that is very unexpected. You might say, I I don't know what, you're taking offense at this. I I didn't mean that. What I meant was this. 
And when we clear up the assumptions, when we become more explicit about our expectations, communication is restored. The relationship is restored. Well, just like among ourselves, communication can become clouded. There can be static in the way we communicate because of our assumptions. Likewise, in our relationship with God, when He communicates to us, oftentimes we communicate with Him or we receive what He says with an unspoken assumption. We often relate to the Lord with certain assumptions And it's our assumptions that govern how we relate to God. We have these expectations and these unspoken desires. We have these uh, uh, false doctrines that rattle around in our souls that dictate how we interpret the Word of God. And so communication is broken down. There's static in the way that we read the Scriptures and then in how we live as Christians. You know, one of the things that God promises in His Word and promises in His covenant is that if you seek Me, if you walk in My paths, you will find rest for your souls. Jeremiah 6.16, He preaches to the people and He says, Search for the old ways. Search for the ancient paths and walk therein and you will find rest for your souls. Amen and amen. That's the same promise that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 through 30. Christ says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and of a mild spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. The same promise that Jeremiah makes is the same promise that Jesus Christ makes. But in this great communication of God, as he brings to us the promises of the gospel, We sometimes interpret his communication with an assumption. We sometimes hear those promises assuming it means something that it doesn't actually mean. You'll notice in both of those promises, Jeremiah and Matthew, the the reward or the benefit is that we find rest for our souls. But in both of those promises, there is a condition. There is a a certain way that we are to walk in that path. There's a certain way that we are to cling to Jesus. Jeremiah says, walk in the old paths. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Follow my lead. Be yoked to me. And it's in these aspects of these promises that we find the promises of the gospel are given to us And the promises of the gospel are ours if we live according to the gospel. If we live in the way that the gospel prescribes for us to live. If we take Jehovah's covenant seriously and we pay attention to all of Jehovah's covenant, Jehovah promises to save us. In particular, what we're going to find in this passage is that Jehovah saves his people according to all the words of his covenant. And his people, personally, individually, cling to Jehovah 
according to all the words of his covenant. Let me say that again. Jehovah saves his people. He saves individual sinners according to all of the words of his covenant. And Jehovah's people cling to him. We walk in the old path. We are yoked to Christ according to all the words of his covenant. Now, if you want the short answer to the title of our sermon, The Rule of the Christian Life, that's Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer number two. What rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule given whereby we may glorify and enjoy him. And what we're going to see in this passage is how that relationship, according to God's words, is played out, both on Jehovah's side and on our side. Verses 73 through 75, we're going to see how Jehovah saves us. Verses 73 through 75. Verses 76 through 80, we're going to see how we particularly cling to Jehovah according to the words of his covenant. 73 through 75, Jehovah saves us. 76 through 80, we cling to Jehovah. Now, as we get into this passage in a little bit more detail, I want you to notice the two sections and why it is I've divided it up that way. It's a little uneven. There's three verses in the first part. There's five verses in the second part. Part of the reason for that is found in verse 76. Your translation may not say this, especially if you have an ESV Bible. Verse 76 in the King James and the New King James says, Let I pray your, uh, your merciful kindness be for my comfort. In Hebrew, that word that's translated as I pray is a small two-letter word in Hebrew. But it is a word that is perhaps uh, better understood as please or um, I beg of you to do these things. It appears in verse 76. That's the first time it appears in the psalm. And what you notice in that transition is the first three verses, the psalmist is speaking about how Jehovah relates to him. Now in verse 76, with this word in Hebrew, the, the focus shifts to how the psalmist is now relating to Jehovah. That's why it's divided that way. Uh, and so we begin with verse 73. We notice first off that Jehovah saves his people by his power. Verse 73 speaks about, as it were, the beginning of our salvation. Notice he says, your hands have made me and fashioned me. These words, when it's used to refer to God's work, refers to a unique work of God in creation and in redemption. This, the words that are used here are often used to refer to God's work of creation. Psalm 8.3, the psalmist says that you have, uh, you have established the heavens. In Psalm 100, verse 3, the psalmist sings and says, uh, It is the Lord who has made us and not we ourselves. That's a reference to redemption. And so the psalmist begins by saying, It is your power that has made me and fashioned me. It is your power that has uh, brought me into this relationship with you. You made me, and you fashioned me. 
This language, by the way, is carried over into the New Testament. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul writes and says that you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. The same idea. What Paul is saying is that it's by God's unique, special, creative power by which he calls those things that do not exist as if they do and brings them into a new existence. Your hands have made me. Your hands have fashioned me. Now, here's one of the first things for us to realize about how Jehovah relates to sinners. The way that Jehovah relates to sinners is by doing everything. None of us is in a relationship with Jehovah unless God created us. Unless he recreated us in the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us can stand in Jehovah's covenant unless he brings us into it. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. And then the psalmist has the second half of the verse. Look at what he says. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Now, at this point, we have to clear up one of the major assumptions that our generation is burdened with. I spoke earlier about the promises of the gospel. You will find rest for your souls. By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are brought into a new relationship with the living God. The gospel promises you life and salvation and all good things for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in our generation, there is an assumption in the church. Even in our own hearts, we tend to hear that gospel promise with an assumption that clouds our understanding of it. And that assumption has sometimes been called antinomianism. Sometimes it's been called Arminianism. Whatever, whatever name we want to put on this assumption, the, the assumption that we operate with is that once we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the law of God is no longer applicable to us. Since it is Christ's righteousness, and it is Christ's righteousness which saves you, it's not your righteousness. Since it is Christ's righteousness that saves me, the law of God has nothing to do with my life as a Christian. You see various theologies that are created to justify this. Probably the most common one in our area is called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism or any other form of that kind of thinking puts a hard distinction between the New Testament and the Old Testament. They'll say things like the Old Testament is for Israel. The New Testament is for the Gentiles. The God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. And there's various schemes that people come up with to separate the Old and the New Testament. These are assumptions that we operate with. This is not the way Jehovah operates. Jehovah clearly communicates with us in the gospel and in this psalm that when he saves us, he saves us for a purpose. He brings us into relationship with Christ so that we can do something. So that we can live a certain way. And that's why the psalmist says, give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. You see, the psalmist understands, Jehovah is the one who's given me life. My life belongs to Jehovah, and now it's my duty to live in a manner pleasing to Jehovah. 
The purpose of God's salvation is so that you would walk in the way of His commandments. Not as a way to earn righteousness, but as the path by which you glorify Him. And so that's why he prays, give me understanding. A couple of things to notice. When he says understanding, this word means discernment. The, the, the Hebrew word means to make a division, to distinguish between two things. He says, give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. This refers to knowing the commandments of God, not in a superficial, legalistic way. This refers to knowing the commandments in a deep, discerning, sympathetic way. What do I mean by that? If you know something sympathetically, you, you, you have a harmony with them. You, you understand them at their very root. You, you love them and you want to do them and you understand why they should be kept. You see, knowing God's commandments is not, we'll use an illustration, when it comes to Sabbath keeping, knowing God's commandments is not keeping the Sabbath in a rigid, legalistic way. We don't do anything on Sunday except read the Bible and sing hymns. And we don't do this, 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 and this. And, and you can create this long list of legalistic observances. The reason we keep the commandment, the reason we keep the Sabbath, is because at root, that's the healthiest thing for your spiritual life. To, to keep the Sabbath day holy is one of the best things you can do for your growth as a Christian. To set apart the day and dedicate yourself to worshiping God publicly, privately, and in families. That's what he's talking about. Give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. By the way, this is the same thing we find in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, teaching all men that denying ourselves and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously in the present age, waiting for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem a people zealous for good works. You see the purpose of the salvation there. The death of Christ is unto your obedience, walking in the way of God's commandments. This is how God relates to us. This is his purpose in his salvation. But he not only saves individuals this way, he also saves us by his power, and he brings us into fellowship with his people. That's what verse 74 says. He says, uh, those that fear you will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in your word. I won't spend as much time on the rest of these verses. The, the first one is foundational to the rest of the psalm. So uh, verse 74, he says, we are not just saved as individuals, but we're brought into community. John says in his first letter, 1 John 3, 10 through 15, and 1 John 5, 1, if we have been begotten by God, if we love the one who begot us, whose hands made us and fashioned us, then we also love those who are begotten by him. If, if we have been brought into a relationship with Christ, we love those who are also in a relationship with Christ. The psalmist describes this relationship. He says that the fellowship of the saints... The true fellowship of the saints is characterized by joy and hope. Notice what he says. Those that fear you will rejoice when they see me. Why? Because I've hoped in your word. Christian fellowship is not gathering around a common hobby. 
Christian fellowship is not gathering around a common lifestyle choice. Christian fellowship is gathered around the word of Jehovah. It's gathered around what he has promised to do, and it's characterized by this hoping, by this waiting for God to fulfill his word. You know, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 characterizes this fellowship as he writes to the Philippian church. He tells them, you are citizens of heaven, waiting, hoping for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That characterizes the Philippian church. Does it characterize our church? Is that what we gather around? This common hope that one day our Lord, as he promised, will return and wipe every tear from our eyes. That is Christian fellowship. And that is what causes those who fear the Lord to rejoice when they see you. Now, here's a very helpful test for ourselves. You know, when you know, men sometimes ask me about being called to the ministry, and you know, in the, in the Bible it talks about two kinds of call to the ministry. There's an internal call. There's also an external call. The internal call would be that deep conviction that I must preach the Word of God. God is compelling me from the inside to preach. The external call is the body of Christ hearing you teach and saying, yes, we agree. It's an outward call, but we recognize that that's a confirmation of what's going on inside. Inside, God is working. Outside, he is confirming. Inside, God calls me to preach. Outside, the church says, yes, you're called to preach. Well, when it comes to the ministry, that we understand that that's how it should work. That's also how it works in being a Christian. See, there's many that internally think, I am a believer. I, I do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But externally, those that fear God may not rejoice when you come around. Notice the, the context here. God, you have fashioned me, and because you fashioned me, you internally have caused me to hope in your word. Externally, those that fear you confirm this. They rejoice when they see me. They, they enjoy my fellowship because I'm like them. They hope in the word, and I hope in the word. It's a good test for us to see where we are spiritually. Do we hope in our own power, or do we hope in the word? On the other side, it's a good confirmation for us. For those of you that do hope in Jehovah's Word and are patiently waiting on the Lord Jesus Christ, those that fear the God rejoice in you. Those that fear the Lord rejoice in those who hope and wait for Him. Well, the Lord saves us by His power. He saves us with His people. And He saves us unto maturity. That's what verse 74, 5 uh, is about. Notice what he says. He saves us unto maturity. Um, and it begins with acknowledging that God's judgments are right. Now you'll notice in this, psalm, this section of the psalm and all throughout Psalm 119, there's various words used to describe God's word. The word, commandments, judgments, precepts, statutes. All these different things are used to describe God's word. And at this point, the psalmist has already used three different words. Commandment, word, and judgments. Judgment refers to God passing sentence as a judge. 
You can look at the case laws in Moses, for instance, Deuteronomy, Exodus. Moses will say something like, if a man is chopping wood with an axe head and the axe head flies off the handle and kills somebody, that was not premeditated, that's not murder, he's not guilty of murder. You see, that's a judgment. It's a legal decision based upon God's law. And now the the psalmist says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right. When God judges, it's righteous. It is justice when God passes sentence. Ezekiel 18, uh, verse 20 through 32 is a a good example of this. The, The prophet is arguing with Israel, and Israel was saying that, well, Jehovah's judgments are not righteous. His ways are not even. The the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And then the prophet goes into a long discussion about how my judgments are right. That the way of the Lord is equal. If somebody sins, he dies. If somebody repents, he lives. And at the end of that section, he says, Oh, Israel, are not my ways equal? Isn't it proper that if somebody sins, they are condemned and die? And if somebody repents and does righteousness, they are spared and they live. Is this not justice? Then it says at the end, repent that you might live. Because if you sin, you will surely die. That is God's judgment against sin. And it is just and it is right. Now notice the psalmist begins with this and then he says the next thing. I know that your judgments are right and that in faithfulness... You have afflicted me. In faithfulness, God afflicts his people. But what is this faithfulness that the psalmist is talking about? It's God's faithfulness to what he promised to do. When God gave his covenant to man, he said, The soul that sins, it shall die. If you walk in the way of the nations, I will chasten you. I will send judgments upon you. I will afflict you to bring you back to myself. God says that in his word. And if we hope to be saved by Christ, we have to agree. God is faithful to his word. Notice the psalmist puts it this way. You have afflicted me in faithfulness. You said that sin is bad, and you disciplined me for my sins. The psalmist recognizes that the afflictions of the faithful, the afflictions of God's people are God's faithfulness to his own covenant. Now, at this point, I I want to take just a little bit of a detour and speak a little bit more about antinomianism and Arminianism. Those two terms are very important if you're a little more theologically inclined. Antinomianism means somebody who is against the law. They are contrary to the law. Arminianism is a term that comes from a man named Jacob Arminius. He was a Dutch theologian, and he taught that men are saved because of their own free choice. He taught that you come to salvation by making a free choice, and that every man has the possibility of making that choice. Well, Arminianism and antinomianism deny verse 75. Part of their system of teaching is that God's people, what they think, 
God's people who are truly in Christ are never punished for their sins. And they reason this way. If Christ has paid the penalty for your sins, there's no longer any more penalty to be paid. And so, if somebody is punished, that either means one of two things. They're not really a Christian because they're being punished. Or they live in the old age of the law. They live in the Old Testament when God still saved men by their own righteousness. Now, this verse directly contradicts that teaching. He says, your judgments are right, and you have afflicted me in faithfulness to your covenant. Here's why this is important, brothers and sisters, and this is really the heart of this first section of the psalm. God saves you according to all the words of his covenant. God saves you and will work in your life according to everything that he has said in the covenant. And he meant it when he said it. He proves that he means it by the afflictions that he sends to you. So two things to keep in mind. First, if God is chastening you for your sins, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. If God is putting you through hardship and sorrow on account of sins that you have committed, that does not mean you've fallen away from Christ. That probably means that Christ is holding you even closer to himself. The book of Hebrews says in chapter 12, Do not forget the exhortation that speaks to you as to sons. For whomever the Lord receives, he rebukes and chastens. He chastens all of his children so that his children can grow in righteousness. The second thing we can draw from this, this is incredibly comforting for us. If you don't believe that God chastens his children, then what do you do when cancer comes? What do you do when financial hardship happens? What do you do when families break apart? What do you do when war and plague and famine and... and, and any of these other chastisements that God sends to you, how do you account for that? What do you do in the midst of that? There's nothing you can do. There's no explanation for it. There's no use that you can make out of it. But when God does send hardship into your life, you can make this use out of it. My Father is chastening me. My Father is humbling me. The world operates... My life operates. Jehovah operates in my life according to his covenant. Where do I need to repent? Where do I need to improve? Where do I need to renew my faith and repentance and return to his ways? Because that's why he's sending it to me. That's why I'm being afflicted. And so we see the Lord saves his people according to all the words of his covenant. And in response to that, Jehovah's people cling to him according to all the words of his covenant. That's what we find beginning in verse 76. You know, clinging, this idea of hanging on to the Lord, is the sum and substance of the Christian life. Jeremiah used an illustration in chapter 13 of his book, Jeremiah 13, 9 through 11. This is the, the episode of the linen sash. 
The Lord tells Jeremiah, get a linen sash and put it around your waist. And then take that sash and hide it next to the river Euphrates. Euphrates was an uh, ancient river. It's still there, but it floods. There's a lot of variation in when the floodplain gets filled up with water and then it goes back down. So Jeremiah hides that linen sash in the mud. And then the Lord says, go get the linen sash. He picks it out and he says, well, this is filthy. This is good for nothing. And the Lord says, exactly. He says, I caused Judah to cling to me the way a sash clings to a man. And I commanded them to walk in my way for honor, for glory, and for praise. But they would not listen. Clinging to Jehovah is the sum and substance of the Christian life. You can think about it this way. Have you ever seen a, a, uh, a mother monkey or a, a mother chimpanzee climbing through the trees and she's got her little baby? Well, as the monkey is climbing through the trees, she's not hanging on to that kid. But what's the kid doing? He's gripping for dear life. He's clinging to his mother. That's what the Christian life is. We cling to Jehovah the way a sash clings to a man. Now, the way in which we cling, this is where our assumptions need to be cleared out. We, we tend to think that we cling to Jehovah according to our own understanding. That we can do what we want so long as we baptize it as Christian. So long as we tell ourselves this honors God when in reality we have not paid attention to his covenant. You know, the monkey hangs on to its mother with its claws, with its feet and its arms. The way that we cling to Jehovah is through prayer. That's why the psalmist now begins in verse 76. Let I pray. You notice uh, Psalm uh, uh, verse 75 through 80, they all begin with the word let. They are all sort of a series of prayer requests that come out as the psalmist is clinging to Jehovah. He says, let I pray thee. Your merciful kindness be for my comfort, according to your word to your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Verses 76 and 77, they, they express sort of the beginning of the Christian life. On God's part, he begins by creating us. On our part, we begin clinging to Jehovah by begging for mercy. By praying to God to have mercy on us. That's where the psalmist begins. Let your tender mercies come to me. Let your mercies come to me that I may live. Let them be for my comfort according to your word. Notice he adds that. Let your mercies according to your word. The mercies that you have promised. And what's one of the chief mercies that God has promised? He hears your prayers. Your prayers ascend into the throne room of heaven. Your prayers are heard by the living God. The wicked are not heard. Those that don't know Jehovah, their prayers go nowhere. But your prayers do. Let your mercies come unto me. Notice also, he, he prays for this comfort and mercy because the law is his delight. Very interesting, isn't it? He says, the Lord, the reason that I want you to have mercy on me, the reason I have boldness to ask you for mercies is because I delight in your law. I love your law. I love your ways. I love all the ways of your covenant that you've given to me. Your law is my delight. I'm one of your people that you have created. Have mercy upon me. When we pray, we have to have reasons for prayer. 
it's good to argue with God in your prayers. Not in an argumentative way, but it's good to reason with God. Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord tells Israel, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as crimson, they shall be white as snow. The psalmist does this here. He goes to the Lord and prays, Your law is my delight. Do we delight in God's law? Not as a way of earning righteousness, not as a way of being better than our neighbor, but as understanding that God's law is the revelation of himself. His law is a display of his character. And if God has transformed us, we love the one who has begotten us. We love our Father. What is our Father like? The Ten Commandments. The books of Moses. That's what Jehovah's like. And so the psalmist says, I love your law. Have mercy upon me. Notice he, he continues praying in verse 78. Let the proud be ashamed, for they treated me wrongfully with falsehood, but I will meditate on your precepts. Uh, he, he prays for, in this uh, verse, he prays for justice to be done upon the proud. In this psalm and throughout the scriptures, the proud are contrasted. They're the opposite of those who fear the Lord. There are those who fear God and walk in His ways, and then there are the proud who do not fear God, they do not walk in God's ways, and they treat the righteous falsely and treacherously. The word here, he says, uh, let the proud be ashamed. The word here means to blush or to feel shame, to be embarrassed, to uh, be uh, shown to be a shameful thing in public. Let the proud be ashamed. Now this is an example of what we might call an imprecatory prayer. This is a scary word for a lot of people. An imprecatory prayer is where we call down the curses of God upon the wicked. Imprecatory prayers are found throughout the scriptures. There's one right here. There's one throughout the book of Jeremiah. They're all over the place in Jeremiah. And what we have to understand about imprecatory prayers is that it's a part of our life as Christians to pray in this way. You know, um, if I bought a rattlesnake, if I want to get a family pet and I bought a rattlesnake, and I, and I brought it into my living room and I let my, my less than one-year-old daughter play with it, some of you might grab me and kill the snake right there on the spot, and I would thank you for that. But the reason we understand this thing has to be gotten rid of is because the snake is poisonous. The snake is dangerous. Now, I could say to you, this is one of God's creatures. We're supposed to take care of the creatures. This is one of God's good creations. Like, yes, I recognize that, but it was not made to be played with babies. Likewise with the wicked. Those that are proud and do not know Jehovah are dangerous. They are poisonous to a church, to a society, and to the world. The wicked will be wiped off the face of the earth. Psalm 104, the psalmist is praising God's works of creation, and at the end he says, let the wicked be removed from the earth because they are poisonous to God's creation. Now this can mean one of two things. Either God destroys them now, or he destroys them in eternity, as we read in Revelation 20. But what we should be seeking is the destruction of the proud. 
because they are contrary to God's ways. But notice how he seeks the destruction of the proud. He doesn't go fighting against them. He meditates in God's precepts. He says, the proud have dealt falsely with me. They've treated me wrongfully with falsehood. So I'm giving my prayer to you, Lord. You take care of this. I'm going to meditate in your precepts. doesn't matter what the proud do. I'm going to walk in your ways. A precept is a general rule that regulates behavior. You find precepts all throughout the scriptures. Seek first. Do unto others. Guard your heart. Give thanks. Seek the Lord. All of these very famous phrases we know from the scriptures are precepts for the Christian life. Psalmist says, I'm going to meditate on them. He continues going through Psalm uh, verse 79 and 80. He prays for God's mercies. He prays for justice to be done on the proud. But then he also prays for fellowship. Let those who fear you turn to me, those who know your testimonies. Again, he returns to this idea of Christian fellowship. And notice how he characterizes those that fear the Lord. It's those that know God's testimonies, that understand God's way and word, that understand the words of his covenant. Well, he concludes the psalm in verse 80, and he prays for a complete sanctification. He's seeking a total holiness of life. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes. The heart in the scriptures is the seat of your identity. It's the centerpiece of who you are. It's not just your emotions. We often talk about the heart as our emotional center. My heart is overflowing with love for my wife. That's emotion. In the Bible, the heart means something much deeper and broader than that. And so he says, let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes. Now, a statute is a regulation or a custom that is observed by strict ritual. It's, it's, a, it's something that God has set up as a, the way to approach him, the, the way to live, the certain procedure for doing certain things. And the psalmist prays, let my heart be uh, blameless regarding your statutes. Let me follow your ordinances in the minutest of details. Let me do exactly what you've commanded in these ordinances and regulations. You know, all of us are uh, a bit ceremonial about things. All of us have daily statutes that we follow some to a greater or lesser degree. I'm sure when you woke up this morning, as you do on every morning, you have your routine. Turn the alarm clock off, maybe open the blinds, maybe go brush your teeth, or maybe you go get a drink of water first. But we all have a a, a routine. We all have a ceremony that we follow. You see, we are creatures of habit. This is how God made us to live. We all follow these certain patterns. Well, the psalmist says, Lord, help me to follow your patterns. Help me to live according to your statutes and to walk in your ways. Let my heart be blameless in these things that I be not ashamed. You know, often when we are ashamed as Christians, we find ourselves being embarrassed. It's because we haven't been walking in God's statutes. We've been shirking our duty somewhere. We didn't pray today. We didn't read the Bible like we should have. We didn't daily bring our hearts before the Lord. That's one of the statutes 
that this is referring to. Seek the Lord daily. Pray and read your Bible every day. Figure out how to make time for that. And you will not be ashamed. And so the psalmist prays for complete sanctification. You'll notice in both of these sections, verses 73 through 75, 76 through 80, there is a progression, isn't there? There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. There's the beginning of Jehovah's relationship with us. He creates us and we cry out for mercy. There's a middle that he brings us into fellowship. We have to deal with the proud and fellowship with believers. And then there's an end goal. There's the maturity of the Christian. There's being blameless in God's statutes. There's a movement to the Christian life. And this movement is according to all of God's commandments, to all the words of his covenant. The Christian life is a regulated life. The Christian life is a life that is to be lived according to a certain pattern of life. You know, in the book of Acts, the first Christians were called followers of the way. The way refers to a path, and a path, if anything, is clearly marked. There's a certain direction you go on the path. That's what Christians were called. They lived a certain way. They followed a certain rule. The reason I'm going into this topic in these communion sermons is because I want you to grow as Christians. I want you to grow in your faith. But most things that go on in the church today, most, most teaching, most doctrine, most discipleship is not based on a rule of life. It's not based on conforming ourselves to the duties of the covenant. It's based upon emotional release. It's based upon uh, making you feel good about feeling good about being a Christian. That's not growth. That's spinning your tires in the mud and staying right where you started. Growth in the Christian life is recognizing there's a pathway that I need to walk. There's a rule that God has given me. And as I walk in that old path, as I follow that old way, as I take the yoke of Christ upon me, I will find rest for my souls. I will find peace that passes understanding as I walk according to the rule of the Christian life. As we come to the Lord's Supper, one of the things we're doing is recommitting to walk on that path. It's recommitting to walk in His ways and to follow this path and through faith in Him to be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and your mercies. We thank you that you have made us and created us. We do pray you would give us understanding according that we might learn your commandments. We do pray you would teach us through the discipline of the cross what it means to cling to you according to your word. We pray you would fill our hearts with great peace and rest beyond what we have experienced. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.